Welcome to the CCF Iowa podcast. We're going to be continuing our For Everyone series by looking at Peter's confession from Matthew 16. Now, one of the things that I had pointed out when we went through Matthew 15 is that this there's kind of a shift that happens here when, when Jesus meets with the Canaanite woman and he starts to realize that his mission is more for the Gentiles than maybe he even at first realized. And so after that, he starts to make a more intentional effort to reach out to Gentile peoples. One of the ways he does this is by the feeding of the 4,000 happening in the Decapolis area, which is known as Ten Cities. It's a very Greek area, and so it would have been Gentile, pagan, you know, all those things that, that his disciples, quite frankly, wouldn't want to be a part of as they were raised to be good uh, Jewish boys in, in their Sea of Galilee, Pharisee-driven philosophy area. So Jesus continues this and kind of continues to push his disciples and push his disciples. In chapter 16, verse 13, it says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Let me stop there because I'm a geography nerd and location uh, is important. It, it, It brings details, it brings warmth, it brings just kind of some other information. So let's look into what Caesarea Philippi, that region, is all about. There's this really interesting geological feature that's going around on, on the cliff face on the hills nearby Caesarea Philippi, and it's where they get their water from. There's this spring that's coming out of this really giant cave, and it's this really like important um, giant huge thing that all the ancient peoples noticed and and they started writing mythology and legends about it and they said because this cave kind of opens up into these underground springs that are that are bursting forth and bringing life and bringing water into their into their valley and into their region and they said this this mouth this opening that's going into the earth has to have some kind of great importance and they said you know what this might even be the entrance to the underworld and so sometimes it'd be referred to as the gates of hell this cave that is there this this opening to the underworld they started using their their deities and developing a mythology related to this location, this gates of hell. And they said, Baal, the God that we worship, the God who brings about fertility to our crops, that he's the one that causes the, the crops to grow and, and he causes the rain to happen. Every time that it's the winter season and our crops start dying and everything around us starts dying, it's because Baal has descended into the depths. He's gone through these gates and he's gone down to the underworld to pursue his mistress. And his mistress happens to be, from from their perspective, from their legend, the goddess uh, Ashtoreth, um, who is the goddess of sexual fertility. And so Baal pursues Ashtoreth and pursues her and there's this kind of like very seductive type dance going on between the two of them and eventually gets to the point that that she keeps teasing him and teasing him and teasing him and and 
And Ball can't stand it. And so eventually, when winter ends, when spring comes, he comes back out of it. But he's already got all this, like, energy and stuff. And so he unleashes what's referred to as his seed. And don't miss the sexual language that's going on here. There's definitely some innuendo and some other things. And that's what causes all the plants to grow. And that's what brings the rain. It's it's Ball's seed being unleashed into the earth. And that's how things grow in the springtime. So this legend, this myth persists, um, but it starts to change some characters. And as the Romans move in, as the Greeks kind of come into this area, they start replacing their gods in the myth. And the primary one at in Jesus' time uh, that was used to represent this myth was the god of Pan. Uh, Pan is this half-goat, half-man. He very much represents sexual fertility in, in Greek-Roman um, mythology. And, and so Pan's the one that, that shows up in this area. And so they start having festivals because... They're recognizing that this is the area that Pan goes to, retreats to in the winter, and all the same stuff that kind of happens, happens with Ball. And so they decide to worship Pan in this area, and, and they build several temples, different kinds of temples to him, um, and, and they have this huge, gigantic festival uh, every year that celebrates Pan. And they refer to it as Pandemonium. Uh, it's actually where we get that word from. It's just this really extended... Um, massive celebration of the god Pan and there's just so much going on and a lot of it because of who Pan is is very sexual in nature um, they in fact have this gigantic statue of I'll, I'll try to censor my language a little bit of, of a phallus um, for those of you that know what that is you know what I'm talking about for those of you that don't know what it is ask someone please do not google these phrases um, but there's this six foot tall phallus that they parade through the city and all the women throw themselves at this statue and and there's just all of this debauchery and things going on so the women do that with a statue the men are over in another temple and they've got this giant mud pit where they've put a bunch of goats and it's kind of their way of worshiping Pan is to do their best to try to recreate who Pan is. Reminder, Pan is half goat and half man. And so they're going through the necessary process in order to make more goat men. You can probably figure that out, but I'm not going to go into the gory details that are not gory, just gross. So that's pandemonium. That's the festival that's happening. That's what this city is becomes known for in Jesus' time. It's a city of debauchery, of pagan festivals, of all kinds of worship that, that essentially any of his disciples, they wouldn't want to be anywhere near this place. Like, they already know their parents have had enough of a heart attack hearing that they went to the Decapolis, and that's a place that they should have never set foot in as good Jewish boys. But then the idea of going to Caesarea Philippi is like, it's unspeakable. It's unthinkable. It's not something that you would ever do if you were raised in a pharisaical region and that kind of culture. This is nowhere that the disciples want to be. And this is exactly where Jesus takes them. So let's pick back up in the story now that we've got a little bit of the flavor of the region. And so Jesus asked his disciples when they're in the region of Caesarea Philippi, who do people say the Son of Man is? 
They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. I'll let you take some time to chew on maybe why the disciples would have named some of those characters. Why would they think that why would they say that people have, are saying that Jesus is John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah? What about Jesus' characteristics that reminds them of those prophets? Chew on that for a little bit. Jesus says, But what about you? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter, known for being generally the first one to answer, kind of the leader of the disciples, uh, probably from what we can gather from historical evidence, the eldest of the disciples, and so looked to naturally as the leader of the disciples, decides to be the one to speak up. Because that's what Peter does. He says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And kind of the more direct translation there is, You are the Messiah. You are the one who has come to save us, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replies, saying, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. So Peter's response, pretty vital, pretty important here. Even greater, maybe, is, is the way that Jesus acknowledges his response. So there's a thing that happens with rabbinical Judaism, with a rabbi and his disciples that are following him. And the way that they teach aren't really the ways that we teach. They wouldn't listen to Jesus lecture them for a while and give them all the answers and tell them everything that's going on. The way that Jesus would have taught is he would have asked his disciples questions. And they would have responded to his questions by asking him more questions. And they could tell if their questions were good enough if their rabbi responded by giving another question. There's also constantly peppering in references to the text, to the Old Testament, because the goal of a rabbi is to always make sure that his disciples are thinking about the text, God's word, the scripture that they have. So there's something that happens here in Peter's response. The you are the Christ, like that's a pretty cool thing, acknowledging and saying that Jesus is the Messiah, in fact. But the thing about it is Jesus replies that this was not revealed to you by man, but my Father in heaven. And I'm not questioning what Jesus is saying. I'm not. Uh, Peter is absolutely correct, I believe, when he acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah. But the fact that he says that this was revealed to you by my Father in heaven, I, I have to think by everything that I've read in Matthew so far, and, and if you take the other Gospels and kind of try to line them up chronologically with what's going on, the things that they've seen Jesus do, the things that the ways that they've heard him talk, I think they probably have already figured out that he's the Messiah. So that second piece of what Peter is saying, I think might actually be the key and the thing that, that Jesus is acknowledging saying, ah, that's something different. That's something that I wasn't necessarily trying to bring you to, but God brought you to. And, and let's see if we can just dig into that even deeper and, and run with that theme that you are the son of the living God, because that phrase living God doesn't occur all that much in the Old Testament. It, it still shows up a fair amount. It's like like a dozen times, but there's only a couple times that seem to make sense for what Peter was talking about when he's trying to say son of the living God. 
So living God. In Joshua 3.10, living God is mentioned right before um, they're talking about how Joshua and the Israelites are going to drive all of the Canaanites out of the land. And they actually mention the seven different tribes there, which kind of represents like all of the pagan nations. That when God is telling Joshua he's going to take his the land, he's mentioned as the living God, the God who drives out all of the foreign nations. And so Peter's thinking maybe along these lines, hey, if I mention living God here in connection to the Messiah, then Jesus will know that I got what he was trying to do, that he brought us up to this really pagan, really terrible land to show us that these are the kind of people that God is going to drive out of our way and it's not going to be a problem and we're going to be able to retake the promised land like we're supposed to because that's, that's what the Messiah has come to do. But the thing about it is I think Jesus is turning this phrase because he says, yeah, you got that living God part, but I want to show you where you're actually supposed to be taking this language and where you're actually supposed to be thinking about it. And the first place where the mention of God as a living God shows up is actually all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. And so we go back to the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, and we look at Deuteronomy 5.26. Now this is immediately after the Ten Commandments are given. And something really interesting is said here. Uh, let me go ahead and start with verse 23. It says, When you heard the voice out of the darkness, while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leading men of your tribes and your elders came to me. And you said, The Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty, and we have heard his voice from the fire. Today we have seen that a man can live even if God speaks with him. This is the people talking to Moses. But now why should we die? This great fire will consume us, and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal man has ever heard the voice of the living God, speaking out of fire as we have and survived? Go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you, we will listen and obey. And the Lord heard when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard what this people said to you. Everything they said was good. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. See, the significance, I think, of this verse in, in Deuteronomy, and it being the very first place where living God occurs, is that God uses this as an opportunity to teach the Israelites, you sent Moses as your surrogate, to be the people who speak to me on behalf because, quite frankly, you were worried that if you approached me that you would die because I'm the living God and I consume mountains with fire and that's who I am. And so you were so concerned of me being the God of punishment that you sent Moses. And that's all fine and good. You can do that. But when I spoke to Moses, I gave him these laws, I gave him these decrees, I gave him these commands so that you may live long and prosper in the land that I am giving you. And he reminds them to follow his decrees, follow his laws, follow his commands. But hidden throughout Deuteronomy is this recurring message that says, Hey guys, these are the laws you're supposed to follow, but also that you're supposed to be teaching them to others. Moses teaches them to your priests, who lives them out and teaches them to you. And the point of me sending you to this land that you're going to is so that you can live out these laws, these commands, these decrees, and teach them to the people there. 
so they can know who I am. One of the things that I think that we miss in the language of Deuteronomy because we fall asleep reading all, reading all of the laws is that the reason that God gives them these things is so they can live upright and be peoples of model, peoples of example. The phrase that is often used in Deuteronomy and, and in Leviticus as well is that Israel is supposed to be a kingdom of priests. And the role of a priest in, in the Israelites' understanding is to be a model for the rest of the people, the rest of Israel, of what they're supposed to be. And then likewise, God makes Israel a kingdom of priests so that they can be that model for the people that they are, whose land they are arriving and coming into. See, the thing about it is Joshua talks all this language about God driving out these four nations. But the plan that's laid out before they cross over into Canaan is to be the kind of people that live out God's message, his truth, his love. And God will bless them beyond all generations so that others will see that he... Our God is different. And so I think what Jesus is doing is he's turning this phrase and says, Peter, you said something that was definitely revealed to you from God because I don't know you would have realized otherwise what you're touching upon. See, you're thinking of the story in Joshua where God's driving out the four nations, but really I want you to think about the story in Deuteronomy where God says, if you follow my decrees, if you follow my laws and my commandments, you will be blessed beyond measure. And that blessing is to be people who are planted in the middle of the crossroads of the earth, which is where Israel is in this point in time, and to be an example to all the nations. It's the call that Abraham was placed under. It's the call that Isaac was placed under. It's the call that Jacob, who became Israel and started that big, massive nation, it's the call that he was grafted into as well. It's the call that we've received from Jesus to be ones who live as an example, who live out this life and dedicate ourselves to following God's commands so that others will see it and know that our God is different. The Messiah is different. This Jesus guy is doing different things. And then he continues on this phrase, and he says something interesting about Peter. He says that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not overcome it. So there's a couple different ways that this phrase has been taken throughout the years. Uh, one, um, uh, those who are Catholic have said, see, Peter was established to be the primary leader of the disciples and moving forward in the church. And then they say, uh, Peter actually establishes the office of, of Pope. And he becomes the first pope, and then all the popes that follow are following in, in the calling of Peter here that he received from Jesus. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. Peter's definitely an early leader of the disciples, already was up to this point, continues on. He's one of the early leaders in the church. He's definitely a very important person to be revered and honored and remembered in our traditions. But the whole pope thing, I, I don't quite agree with. And if I did, I'd probably be a Catholic, but I'm not. I'm what's called a Protestant, um, which is basically not a Catholic. The way that Protestants usually take this phrase is they say, when he says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, they interpret the, this rock to be metaphorical, not related to Peter's name, which, by the way, um, the name that Peter does mean rock, but it more means rocky. It's Petras. And the term that Jesus uses in the next sentence is Petra. 
Petros versus Petra. Petros is kind of like rocky, rock-like. You're like a rock. That's who you are, Peter. You are Petros. But Petra refers specifically to bedrocks and cliff faces, that kind of rock that you want to build the foundation of your house on, or in Jesus' case with this metaphor, that you want to build the foundation of the church on. And so Protestants, when they've broken down this passage and, and reinterpreted it, said he's not referring back to Peter himself specifically. He's referring back to the statement that Peter has made because that's the kind of statement you can build the church on. That you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And I think there's a lot of truth in that as well. That's a great statement. That's a really important statement for us to carry forward. And especially with the way that Jesus has used that statement that Peter has given. That's a good thing for us to build on. But the thing that the way that I've been taught to interpret this and the way that I, I think might be the best way to interpret this is to remember that Jesus is a Jewish rabbi teaching his disciples. And the thing about rabbinical Judaism, it talks a little bit about they've got question, following question, following question. They're always referring back to the text. Like those are the kind of styles they used to teach. Another thing that a rabbi does in this time is they don't really, they do metaphors, but they want to have concrete things that you can point to. You point and talk about concrete things that people can understand, and you use that to build a word picture about who God is or about what you're establishing or what you're doing. And so I think when Jesus is talking about a rock and the church that he's building and the gates of hell will not overcome it, I think Jesus wants to have something that he can point to. And this goes back to why are they in Caesarea Philippi? Because Jesus wants to point to a rock and he wants to talk about the gates of hell. And Caesarea Philippi is this, there's this mountainside going on and there's this cave that has springs coming out to it that's referred to as the gates of hell. It's the entrance to the underworld. And so when Jesus talks about it, he wants to talk about these big rocks, these cliff faces, these bedrocks that they can literally see, that he can point to. And he wants to remind them the reason we're in Caesarea Philippi is because this is the thing that people refer to as the gates of hell. And those things won't overcome what we are establishing, what we are building here. And we're not going to build our church where it's safe. We're not going to build our church in the Sea of Galilee, in the region of the Pharisees, who, who had this very similar to theology to where we do, where you would, as disciples, would feel very comfortable because we're building the church in your hometown. No, where we're going to build the church is right here, where we can stare down the gates of hell, where we can see all the people participating in the pandemonium, that's where I want to build my church. I want my church to stand as an emblem to these people who you wouldn't even be willing to talk to because of your upbringing. I want to find the outsiders and I want to build my church in their neighborhood. That's why we're in Caesarea Philippi because this is where we're going to build the church. These people are going to be reached by sacrifice, by dying to yourself, by giving up the things that have taught you to look down on them, to not care about them, to be disgusted by them. You need to put to death all those things every day and carry your cross and die to who you are so that you can reach these people, so that you can love these people, so that you can get over yourself and the person that you were trained to be and love the people that you thought were unlovable. I'm here for them. I'm here for the Gentile.
I'm here for the Jew. I'm here for everyone. Hey, thanks for spending time with us today. If you have any questions about what you heard or any interest in learning more about CCF in Iowa, then please email us at ccf.uiowa at gmail.com and we would love to get you connected.